Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome. Uh, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you or introduce myself to you, my name is Jason. I have the honor of being pastor here at the church, serving uh, in a body of six elders, among whom Billy serves as well. And uh, we're honored that you're here. We're glad you're here. We're going to be in Revelation 20 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone or tablet, um, if you don't have a Bible, as always, we provide Bibles underneath the seats around you. Feel free to grab one of those to follow along. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our, our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word to guide you through this year and through your life. And so that's for you. So we'll get to Revelation 20 in just a minute. Um, just a reminder, this Tuesday night is a very important meeting. And I, and I, and I don't even want to call it a meeting. It's an all-member slash all-leader meeting. And when we hear that, we tend to think business meeting. Um, but this is a business meeting like no other business meeting you've been to um, because we're going to begin with testimonies. We're going to hear from you, just some of the remarkable work that God has done in your life over the last year. Uh, we're going to look at um, some of the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the ministry, the finances, attendance, those kinds of things as well. Uh, but we're going to revisit our vision and talk about how every person who's a member of our church is on mission and a part of this vision. And uh, so I hope that you'll be here. Um, a lot of important things to talk through, the new building, um, all those sorts of things. So please be here this Tuesday evening at 6.30. If you're a leader, life group leader, team leader, leadership team, staff or elders, um, please plan on hanging around for a brief uh, all-leader meeting right afterwards. Uh, that's this Tuesday night, 6.30 in here. All right. Ready to get started with Revelation 20. Um, if you're just joining us and you haven't never visited our church or maybe you haven't been here in a while, we've been working through the book of Revelation now since September. And, uh, and we're down to the last three sermons, which means we're right at the end. And we're right on the cusp of what I would say the point of the whole Bible is. Uh, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks as we wrap up Revelation. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, today... Uh, we're going to be in a passage, Revelation 21 through 10, which is probably the most disputed uh, passage in all of Revelation uh, in reference to the millennium. And I would say it's even among probably the top five to ten passages in all the Bible that's disputed on, the, on its interpretation. So this week, after about 16 hours of study, I decided, you know what, let's just punt and skip it, and we'll just do baptism today instead. So you good with that? No, not really. You wouldn't let me off the hook that easy. So we're going to talk through, um, we're going to use the timeline again. Those of you who haven't been here, I'll talk you through it in just a minute. Uh, if you have been, we're going we're gonna to talk through this again so you can get some fresh reminder on the timeline of human history, timeline of the Bible and how Revelation plays into that. And so we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's get started in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. First three verses. And we'll talk about it. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Ooh, are you, are you intrigued yet? All right. So what we're going to talk about first here, before we get to the thousand-year portion of this passage, we're going to talk about the scene and what's happening here. He begins, this is John again. He was a disciple of Jesus at this point in history, the last living 
disciple, apostle of Jesus. All the others had been martyred. He's exiled on an island, and he's writing down this revelation. He, he's writing down what he sees. He says, then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. We already know from the Bible that ultimately what he's, what he's representing here is the authority of Jesus. Jesus alone holds the keys, as we read in Revelation 1.18, to death in Hades. Jesus has these keys. And in Matthew 16, he gives these keys, the keys to the kingdom, to the disciple by saying, here, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. So the disciples have this gospel, this great gospel message that unlocks eternity for the souls of the people here on earth. Revelation 1, Jesus has the keys to death in Hades. So what we're seeing here is not an angel operating on his own authority, but under the authority of Jesus. Jesus has handed him the keys, and he's come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, this is at least the third reference to the bottomless pit in Revelation, maybe the fourth. And in each time, one time, this is where locusts emerge from this bottomless pit. We saw that the... Uh, that the, uh, the, the dragon and the serpent, or the dragon and the beast, uh, the beast emerged from the, one of the beasts emerged from the abyss. And so this language isn't unfamiliar to us. This idea of, of a, an abyss was used um, oftentimes to describe the depths of an ocean. You know, for these folks, they didn't have sonars or any way to get to the bottom of an ocean. So for them, it was bottomless, right? And so this comparison now is this bottomless pit is a place where, Evidently, Satan himself is going to be bound. And so what I want to see here in this, these three verses is the authority of Jesus over Satan. Okay? So last week we saw that uh, Jesus shows up on a white horse, war paint, ready to go to battle for his bride. And the, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those who bore the mark of the beast were all thrown in the lake of fire. Okay, we saw this great battle. It didn't take very long. Now we're seeing the authority of Jesus over Satan himself. I want to look at the key words here um, represented in, two, in verse 2 and 3. Again, reflecting the authority of God over Satan. Verse 2, and he seized the dragon. Not only did he seize the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, he bound him. Verse 3 says he threw him into the pit, and then shut it, and then sealed it over him. We get five descriptive words describing the authority of God over Satan. Let's walk through those together. If you're taking notes with us today, and if you'd like to take notes, um, we have sermon notes in the seats in front of you. If you're on the front row, they'd be right behind you. But I welcome you to take, take one of these out uh, and fill in the blanks as God leads you. Let's talk through this now. So the first thing that happens is the angel seizes the dragon. So this word in the Greek, if you just translate it, means to grasp strongly or to take possession. So if you've got a scuffle between two guys and they're equally matched, they're going to actually take hold of one another, right? And pull, they're both going to be pulling. But in this particular reference, as this scuffle ensues, the angel takes hold of Satan. Satan doesn't take hold of the angel. This isn't an equal match. The angel seizes, grasps strongly, takes possession of Satan. I got this imagery in my mind of this angel picking up Satan by the scruff of his neck, and this is all in my imagination. It's not biblical at all. Just picking him up, right? Just picking him up. 
Well, the next thing that we read is this. Not only did he seize the dragon, uh, but he bound him for a thousand years. This is to bind or to tie up. Okay, so this is kind of the imagery of wrapping his arms around him or binding him up with ropes and, and rendering him useless, helpless, can't do anything. Not at all an equal scuffle here. The angel has seized Satan and bound Satan. The next thing that we see here is that he threw him into the pit. Now it's getting out of hand, right? Once one of them gets thrown, right, a, a full display of who's, who's in charge is, has, has been had, right? And so not only does this angel seize Satan and, 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 and literally pick him up off the ground, bind him, but now Satan has been thrown. Satan has been thrown. Just, uh, we talk about, um, so again, this is just my mind working here, um, but this idea of, of taking possession of something, okay, with authority is what's being depicted here, right? Satan is being owned right now in this moment by an angel of the Lord. And I mean that more than just metaphorically. He's being owned here, right? Seized, bound, and thrown. The next thing that we see is that he is shut so he throws him into the pit, and he shuts it. Now, this is a really important word, shutting it, okay? Because it, it, probably a better translation is to obstruct the entrance to. What a door does, it obstructs the entrance. It's the same word that Jesus uses talking to the Pharisees who had become an obstruction to people getting into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, Jesus uses this word. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The Pharisees in Jesus' time had become an obstruction. Their legal demands on people, this high level of morality that you had to attain before God would call you his own, it was becoming an obstruction, right? And they were standing in the way. And so now here, that same imagery is being depicted by this angel who is seized and bound and thrown, and now he is obstructing, standing in the way of Satan as he shuts the bottomless pit. And then not only that, he sealed over him. This, this is the idea of marking with authority. We've seen this in Revelation. It's the idea of when you have a scroll that's been sealed, it marks authority. And so this angel is standing over the door, the entrance to this bottomless pit where Satan has been seized, bound, thrown, shut in, and now sealing it. You get this imagery? This is not an equal scuffle here between an angel and, and Satan. This angel is representing the authority of Christ here against Satan. If you're taking notes, God displays his sovereign power and authority over Satan by... Seizing the dragon, which is to grasp strongly or take possession. Binding him, bind or tie up, just like it sounds. Throwing him, he threw him into the pit. Shutting him, which is to obstruct the entrance to. And then sealing over him, marking it with authority. Now, before we ever get to the, the thousand years and the different views on the thousand years, there's a clear picture of the authority of God displayed here over Satan. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Potentially, this is the 24 thrones with the 24 elders from Revelation 4. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. These are the ones who've been killed for the sake of Christ, martyrs. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So you get this imagery here, 24 elders, all the martyrs, all the saints. It's kind of this imagery of all the people of God here. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You got it? Everybody crystal clear? Moving on? Let's talk about this for a minute. So just some things that we, we, can, we can know are sure and true and right. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is creation. He created it, and he said it's good. And at the end, he said it's very good. When God says very good, it's not like when I say something's very good, because I'm talking about a bowl of ice cream is very good. God's saying it's perfect, very good. Genesis 3, two chapters later, Adam and Eve begin to write their own story, write their own purpose in life and rebel against God. Following the deception of Satan, they sin. The relationship between God and man is fractured. Adam and Eve are hiding from God now. And they're even hiding from themselves. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves up one from another. So you see broken horizontal relationship between Adam and Eve. Now this shadow of death is cast across the human timeline. Every man, woman, and child is born underneath that shadow of death, right? This explains a lot about our world and about our sinful nature. The whole Old Testament is this proclamation of a coming promise to solve that problem, the Messiah who would come. So all throughout your Old, Test Old Testament, from Genesis through Malachi, we begin to get this, this beautiful coming promise of a Messiah who would rescue us from the shadow of death. Jesus comes to the scene. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, lives a perfect life, willingly goes to the cross, as Billy prayed, sacrificed himself, submitted himself to suffering, to public humiliation on our behalf. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And this happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He resurrects from the dead, displaying power over sin and death, right? Displaying his power over Satan, and then launches the church. And so the rest of your New Testament begins with Acts. The explosion of the church launches. And God begins to build his kingdom here on earth through the power of the resurrection of Jesus moving forward. Then we get to this book, Revelation, that begins to talk about things that seem to be in the future and, and possibly even happening in the first century. And so we need some bearings, some things we know for sure. What we're looking for is it happened last week in Matthew 19, the return of our king. Right? The groom who comes for his bride, the church, he will return. And when he returns, as we will see in two weeks, what we're looking at is this beautiful recreation of the heavens and the earth. What God created very good in Eden, he recreates for eternity. And we're longing for that. We'll get to there in two weeks. Now, in between, where we need to figure out, or we need to talk about is where this millennium takes place. Okay, and so just right off the bat, there's two different views on the millennium. One is literal and one is figurative or symbolic. Okay, you've got some notes there in your, uh, in your sermon notes. You may want to follow along. So I'm going to talk to you first about postmillennialism. 
Okay, and by the way, all three of these views, um, there are respected, Jesus-loving theologians who fall into all three of these views, right? Because I know it would be so much easier if I would just study it and come tell you, here's what the Bible says. But I'm just going to be honest with you. This is a wrestling match for me, okay? Right, and so it's not a time to, to just plug our ears and not pay attention. It's the word of God. It's a time to wrestle with these realities and allow God to speak to you through these realities. So post-millennialism is the idea that Jesus comes back after the millennium. So for post-millennialists, they believe that, that the millennium actually begins symbolically at the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And so what they believe, a post-millennialist will believe, is this, that the kingdom of God begins to build here on earth through the power of the gospel, gradually taking over the earth in a literal sense. Now, not a literal thousand years, because we're already 2,000 years past the resurrection. So the number is symbolic, but it's a literal reign here on earth, right? And so in America, it's pretty easy to, to, to maybe subscribe to that way of thought, because we see the church... Here in America, we don't have a lot of persecution. But now, if you're in Syria right now, it's a, it's a harder view to buy into. The idea that right now on earth, Jesus is reigning physically and his church is going to take over everything. Okay, so it's, that's one view that would say this, that the return of Jesus happens. Let me get my uh, trusty hooks working. After the thousand years of reign, post-millennium. Make sense? So there's a view that would say, I believe that Jesus will return after the millennial reign because the millennial reign is here on earth and it's literal, but it's going to take more than a thousand years for it to happen. The gospel's spreading to take over the world. Okay? A gradual taking over, reigning here on earth. Now, there's another view called amillennialism that's similar that would see the, the millennial reign of Christ not as literal, but as symbolic. And at the power of the resurrection, those who have trusted Christ right, have experienced his salvation and his lordship. And so it begins symbolically then throughout the church age, right? Not literally here on earth, because while here on earth, things might get worse and worse and worse and worse, the kingdom of God is growing and growing stronger and stronger and stronger in a spiritual sense. Okay, so it's more of an all-millennial uh, perspective and view on things. Uh, I believe Augustine, a great theologian from early in church history, was an all-millennialist. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, was a post-millennialist. Now, there's another view that's, a little, that's more literal. And so this view, let me take these down, is what we call premillennialist, which means that Jesus comes back before the millennial reign. This view reads Revelation 19 and 20 in chronological order, right? So then after Jesus returns, the millennial reign will begin... But before the recreation of the heavens and the earth, it will end, and the final judgment then sits right here. This is what's called premillennial, and that this is a, a literal thousand-year reign that takes place after Christ returns. You good? All right. Now, let's work through this passage together. So we see thrones. We see those seated on the thrones. We saw in Revelation 24 there were small thrones around the throne of God and 24 elders who sat on those thrones, potentially what we're seeing here. We've already mentioned those who have been martyred or beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And we've also seen those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. All of these came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So 
the great struggle of interpretation is, is this a literal coming to life or is this simply receiving salvation and a promise of eternal life? Is it literal or is it symbolic? So if you look at the passages in Revelation, Revelation 1.18, Jesus is called the living one. I died and behold, I, I'm alive forevermore. Jesus is talking about his own resurrection literally. So there's a sense that this could be literal, came to life. Revelation 2.8, and the angel of the Lord, or the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So that phrase came to life is used in Revelation several times to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, which we know is literal. I mean, he, he, he had a barbecue on the beach with his disciples. He ate fish. It was a physical body resurrection. We know in that Revelation 13 that the Antichrist actually mimics the resurrection of Jesus. He had a mortal wound that had been healed. Revelation 13, 14 says this, that by the signs that it was allowed to work with the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So even the Antichrist is mimicking this dying and coming to life thing. Look at Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, Jesus, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will come to life or live, a literal resurrection. John eleven twenty five 25 says this, and this promise comes to us. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. Literal resurrection. But then we have passages of scripture that talk about the resurrection symbolically. I'll just give you one reference, Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Speaking to people still living here on earth, if you've been raised with Christ, resurrected with Christ, meaning what? Spiritually resurrected, right? Tasting the new life, walking in the new life, still here on earth in physical form, haven't been physically resurrected, but spiritually have been. So you can kind of see where you could, you could land either way here. Then, it's, then as we continue reading, Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So the rest of the dead, non-believers would be assumed to be this group of people, right? But some would say, you know what, maybe these are also believers involved as well because we haven't got to a final judgment yet. So there's two options there. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So came to life, first resurrection, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now we get second, but not second resurrection, second death. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what we have here is either a spiritual resurrection that begins to take place here, raised with Christ by faith, right? Or we have a literal resurrection that we're all still waiting on. Okay, one, one or the other. Now, the, the wording seems to, seems to point more towards literal. Okay, I'll let you work, wrestle through that on your own. Uh, and so, as we think about what this means then, um, the second death has no power over them. Who's the them? Those who are in Christ, undoubtedly. So one possible interpretation is that Jesus has returned in Revelation 19, he's made war against the Antichrist, the prophet, those who bore the mark of the beast. Into chapter 20, we're getting a, a chronological perspective here. 
And now you have the reign of Christ and resurrected with him are those who have been, who sat on the thrones, those who have been beheaded, those who didn't receive the mark of the beast, and now they're reigning with him literally. And then what happens at the end is the second death or pointing towards the judgment. Of course, the judgment has no power over those who are in Christ. Man, you guys zoned in right here. I'm enjoying that. Um, either you're checked out completely and you're just giving me the, uh, the courtesy stare, or you're like, you're getting all this. You're, you're, you're downloading, you're figuring it all out. Well, well, intentionally, I'm not telling you where you need to land, okay? At Solid Rock, our philosophy is to land hard where the Bible lands hard and to land softly where the Bible lands softly. So for us, this is a tertiary issue, okay? You can have a unity of faith amongst yourselves and representing all three of these views. Why? Because the main point of it all, as we're seeing as chapter 20 opens up, is the authority of Christ displayed over the power of Satan Right? All of his enemies, as we'll see, being made a footstool. Those who've trusted in Christ will co-conquer, co-reign with him. Whether that's referring to symbolically from the resurrection, going to forward until his return, or if that's a literal thousand-year reign. Either way, Jesus reigns in authority over the universe, and those who trust him will co-reign with him. If you're taking notes, those who place their faith and trust in Jesus will be resurrected into eternal life. Will be. Physically resurrected. Physically. Not spiritually into some smoky, hazy, Wizard of Oz kind of land that's got Pink Floyd playing in the background and all these weird things. No, literally will be physically resurrected. Can I tell you, is it going to happen here or here? I don't know, but it happens before this takes place. And you, if you're in Christ, will enjoy the new creation, the recreated heavens and earth, perfect and pure and holy. You will enjoy that forever, physically resurrected into eternal life. All right, verse 7, we're going to continue looking at the thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So let's talk through that in reference to what we just talked about. Now, I'm not going to leave this up here for the sake of trying to convince you to be a premillennialist. So we'll just take those down, let you think through that. But let's talk about then the implications of what we just read. When the thousand years are ended, right, whether it's before or after this, Satan is released to deceive the nations. That are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. This is from the Old Testament. Gog was a, a leader of the northern kingdom. Magog is land of Gog. And so this was representative, symbolic of uh, the armies or the nations of God, or, uh, nations of earth against God and his people. Gog and Magog, together for them a battle. Now, does this sound familiar? Because in Revelation 19, we read about a battle, gathering armies. We gather for them a battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So one or two things are happening here. Either we had a battle in Revelation 19, and at the coming of Christ, he took the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those who bore the mark of the beast, and he defeated them, threw them in the lake of the fire. And now we have a second battle 
okay, where Satan is now gathering for himself an army. So if you're a premillennialist, here's the problem. Where does this army come from? How do you populate these, this army with enemies of God? So in the thousand-year reign, men and women still giving birth, generations still happening, still then is there the potential for some to follow Jesus and some to deny him. If you're premillennialist, that's the view, that at the end of the thousand-year reign, there are still people here on earth who have not trusted Christ. There are those who have who are reigning. And from those who haven't trusted Christ, then Satan has populated a, a last final army, a numerous army, by the way, right? So it's either a second battle happening right after or it's what's called a recap, which comes from the word recapitulation, which means it's that army seen from Revelation 19 being recapped, this time focusing on the defeat of Satan. And I'm going to show you how it gets, why it's tricky to figure that out. All right, so there's a battle. There are those gathered for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Uh, Jesus is talking in Luke 21, 20 about um, the battle of Armageddon. He's talking about end times, and he says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation has come near. So this idea of Jerusalem being surrounded by the enemies of God is imagery you know, all throughout the Bible here. And so now we're reading it in Revelation 20. This army following Satan has surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They've marched, they've surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And so it appears that there's this great battle about to take place. But did you notice how quick it was over? The Bible takes one verse to tell us, or really this last half of a verse. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Done. Yeah. Done. Satan, God's greatest adversary, with an army that was as numerous as the sand on the seashore, has gathered against the people of God, and in a, an instant, boom, it's over. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Remember from Revelation 19. That's where the false prophet, the Antichrist, and those who bore the mark of the beast were thrown. And he goes on to repeat that. Where the beast and the false prophet... Now, some of your translations say were and some say are. In the Greek language, there's no word there. That's why it's difficult. We don't know. Were they already there? Because it happened before the, at, the, at the second coming of Christ. It's, it's the first battle, and now we're at the second battle. Satan is thrown where the false prophet and Antichrist were thrown. The word's not there. We don't know. Or is it where they are thrown, meaning it's the same battle, just talked about twice, this time focusing on Satan. And so the wording is difficult. It leaves us then to wrestle with the text. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is thrown, this is the literal translation, where also the beast and false prophet. And it stops. Where also the beast and the false prophet. So we don't know chronologically how this is unfolding, but we do know spatially how this is happening. They're going to the same place under the same authority, right? With the same type of devastation and defeat, they're going to the same place. And so while we can't 
nail down perfectly the chronology. Here's what we do know. If you've been with us in this series, something we noticed really specifically starting in Revelation 12 up until 19 is that Satan himself begins to present himself as a false trinity. Right? Satan taking the place of the father, wanting to hold the position of authority. He extends authority to the Antichrist who mimics Jesus by having crowns, right, representing royalty, by having a wound that, that had been, a mortal wound that had been healed. He begins to mimic Jesus. So we have Satan representing the father. We have the Antichrist reflecting Jesus. And then we have the false prophet reflecting the Holy Spirit, doing signs and miracles and wonders. And they're, they're transferring authority and glory just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do. We took time to read that, right? Jesus operates in the authority given to him by his Father, and his role is what? To bring glory to the Father. The Holy Spirit operates in the authority given unto him, and his role is what? To bring glory and illumination to Jesus. And so you see this transfer of authority amongst the Trinity and glory. And so Satan, from Revelation 12 specifically into 19, is mimicking this here on earth. And so whether we can figure it out chronologically or not, this is the end of the false trinity. This is the end of Satan and his schemes to try to cause us to believe that he's somehow God and follow after him in allegiance. And his end comes suddenly, boom. Fire comes down from heaven and it's over. See, there's no, there's no tussle here. There's no ongoing wrestling match battle between God and Satan. Jesus sends an angel with his authority, right? There's no, there's no tussle here. He's seized, he's bound, he's thrown. He owns him, shuts him in, obstructs his way out, seals over it with authority. Here he's been led out, right, with a vengeance. He's coming against the people of God. He gathers an army, either populated from, right, the, the literal millennial reign or, right, maybe post-millennial, we're not sure, but anyway, right, he populates an army. He comes after the people of God. He surrounds them. They look as though they are defeated. And what happens? God said, I'll show you what happens. Done. Done. All this time, the people on earth thought Satan was a great, right, adversary of God. He possessed great power and was one to follow after. And in an instant, God says what? Not so. The devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with a beast and a false prophet. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, one of the things I want you to see in this moment, we're going to stop at verse 10 today. We're going to come back next week, pick up at 11 and go forward. One of the things I want you to see is not only that this is the end of the false trinity, um, but I want, to see, want you to see in this is a vindication for those who have died and suffered on, the, on behalf of Christ. Because remember at the very beginning, we have those who have been beheaded. I don't know if you remember this, if you've been with us in the sermon series, but in Revelation 6, we heard a prayer from those who had been martyred. I'm going to read that prayer to you real quick. So in Revelation 6, this is early on in Revelation, we've just finished this amazing throne room uh, scene with God's glory being represented by thunder and lightning. We call it the storm theophany. The next chapter in Revelation 6, at the fifth seal, when it's open, John says, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had borne. These are martyrs, those who have died for the sake of Jesus. Now, if you're a person who sees everything in Revelation in the future, these are all the martyrs. John's writing this in, a, in the mid-90s AD. It's at least all the martyrs who have take, who have hap, that have happened from the resurrection to then, but possibly all the martyrs. And here's what they're praying. Oh, with a loud voice, mind you, verse 10. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And God speaks back into that. And in Revelation 11, or excuse me, 6, 11, they were, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until what? Their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as them as they themselves had been. In this moment, God is saying, right? All the martyrs aren't represented here. I hear your cry. I hear your, your plea to vindicate your death, but all the martyrs have not died yet. Rest a little longer. Here's a white robe, rest a little longer. God is not saying, I will not vindicate you. He's saying what? It's not time yet. It's not time yet. We've made it to the point in the story where it's time. It's time, right, for the saints of God to be vindicated. It's time for those who have died for the sake of Jesus, for following him, to be vindicated. It's time for all who have suffered under the oppression of the fall, under the guises of Satan himself, to be vindicated. It's time for the glory of God that has been trampled on since Genesis 3 to be vindicated. I don't know what suffering has taken place in your lives. You're all sitting here today, so you haven't been martyred yet for Jesus. Could happen to somebody in this room, but you haven't been yet, right? But you've experienced suffering. You've experienced the suffering at the hands of the enemy. Satan himself has, has tempted you, lured you, lied to you, deceived you, called you into sin, called you into believing a lie, and you've suffered because of it. Others of you have suffered, right, for what seems like no reason at all. Right? But, but it has reason. You're under the fall. right? This is the, the shadow of death has been cast across humanity. Cancer, famine, abuse. Many of you have suffered, right? And, and you didn't have anything to do with it. All suffering will be vindicated in this moment. Remember what God said to the slaves of Israel who were in Egypt, I hear your cry for mercy, I see your suffering, and I will respond. Remember what he says in Revelation 6. You will be vindicated, but not yet. Here, put on a white robe, rest a little while longer. It's not time yet. All injustices are vindicated in this moment. The accuser's gone. All his accusations Against you are gone with him. Psalm 110, verse 1 from the Old Testament paints an imagery that I want you to see. Now, in, in, at the time Psalm 110 was written, this is, a, this is a relationship between King David and God the Father. We know from Old Testament history and New Testament interpretations that King J David was a shadow, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. 
right? King David was a better king than Saul, but he reflected a better king who was to come, one who would sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever, 2 Samuel 7. So there's this relationship between God the Father and David reflecting, right, the relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus. And so in Psalm 110, we read this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now for King David, that was encouraging. He had a lot of enemies. God the Father is speaking peace into King David. King David, stay right by my side and I'll bring your enemies and I'll make them your footstool. But here's what we know from the New Testament. When Peter preaches in Acts 2, he says, you know who that passage was about? It was actually literally about Jesus. The author of Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews 1, talking about Jesus who who left his throne of glory and came and walked among us here on earth, was made lower than the angels. The author of Hebrews says that verse in Psalm 110, that was actually about Jesus. And then in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, this is where I want to end today. I want you to hear these words. The author is talking about what took place in the temple in the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 10, 11, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So throughout the whole Old Testament, you got the priest serving in the temple, offering animal sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. The author of Hebrews says, you know what? It didn't work. Why? Because they had to come back the next year and do it again. And in this passage, he's saying they daily had to do this, right? Why? Because we kept sinning. Any one of us, if you could just hit the pause button on our life and, and extend complete forgiveness, right? And then you hit play again, guess what? The moment we hit play, we're gonna start messing it up again, right? So the, the, the sacrifice of animals doesn't work to, to, to remove our sins and give us righteousness. The author of Hebrews is saying, the priest did this daily and it never worked. Verse 12, but when Christ pointing to the cross, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 110. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know why I believe there's not a long drawn out battle in Revelation 20? because I believe the battle was actually won at the resurrection. When Jesus steps out of the tomb, he's displaying his power over Satan, over sin, and over death. So you can take post-millennial view, you can take a pre-millennial view, you can take an all-millennial view. The power of the victory was displayed in the resurrection. Jesus steps out of the tomb, taking our sin, our shame, and our death. He steps out of the tomb and he says to everybody, see, I've got this. I've got it. There are no enemies that shall prevail over the Son of God. And this imagery of footstool is is one of defeat and shame. You get this imagery of a king with his feet propped up on his enemies. This is the way God describes what I believe this moment in Revelation 20 is depicting. Whether you believe that there's two battles, Revelation 19, then Jesus comes back and there's a battle against the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those that are marked, and then there's a second battle against Satan and those who are left to wage war, or you see that as a recapitulation of the same battle, doesn't matter. They're both one in the victory and the power of the cross. 
You, if you're in Christ today, are walking in the power of that victory. It's why Colossians 3.1 says, if you have been raised with Christ, by faith you've been raised by Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And you don't have to wait until he comes back to experience his lordship in your life. King Jesus is sitting on his throne right now. We don't have to figure out perfectly the chronology of Revelation and how it all unfolds to pull out the main points of what's going to happen. At the final battle, the saints of God will be finally vindicated and the enemies of God will be finally defeated. At the final battle, the saints of God will be finally vindicated and the enemies of God will be finally defeated. Now, here's what we have left in Revelation. We'll come back next week. We're going to look at the judgment before the great white throne and the death of death itself, and then the week after that, the new Eden. Here's what I want to do now. I want to take just a moment to pray. We've got an exciting moment uh, of baptism coming up. And, uh, and I want to take just a minute before we even go there to give you a chance to deal with and wrestle with whatever God is speaking to your heart today. Maybe for the first time in your life, you realize, I don't know Jesus that way. I've heard about the cross. I even have a couple in my house. I have a necklace with a cross, but I didn't realize the significance of the cross until this moment. And maybe today is the first time you've realized that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave for you. And here's how you can receive the forgiveness he's extended to you, by believing by simply believing that he is who he says he is, by trusting in what he has done for you and receiving it in faith. The power of the resurrection becomes yours. I'm gonna pray for us now. I'm gonna ask the worship team for, uh, for you guys to come back up and get ready to lead us in singing in a few minutes. Um, but let's take a moment just to pray together, if we could. If you wouldn't mind bowing your heads with me, let's pray together. Father, we've, uh, we've walked through a lot in a short amount of time this morning, and uh, we know that even now the enemy is waging war against your people, against us, attempting to steal glory from you, attempting right now to distract us from the good work that you've done in us this morning. God, thank you that despite our inability to figure out the, the time frame exactly, we know that through the power of the resurrection, every person in this room can, can, can rest assured of eternity. And while we can't exactly place the millennium on the timeline, what we do know is that every believer is longing for the return of the king. We pray like the martyrs in Revelation 6, how long, O oh Lord, before you vindicate the suffering of your people? How long, O oh Lord, will you stand by and watch your glory be trampled? But as we pray that, at the same time we trust in your timing. So God, any person here who doesn't know you right now, our prayer is that that person by faith would come to you in this moment, trusting in the work of Jesus by saying, Jesus, I need the forgiveness that you offer I trust in the work of the cross. I believe you've died and risen again. 
to be my Savior. You pray that prayer in your own words, in your own heart. That is your act towards salvation. And for those in this room who are experiencing suffering right now, God, again, praying with the martyrs, how long until this suffering shall end? God, could we, as the martyrs in Revelation 6, could we rest trusting in your sovereign timeline this morning, knowing that whatever we're walking through in this life or about to walk through in this life, we can do so without a fear of evil, without a fear of the darkness. God, because we truly believe in the resurrection. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.